Before we get started, I want to have a little public service announcement for you all. It is very hot in here today. And if you've had far more coffee than water, then uh, we have a hospitality team in the back, and they're going to have water supplied there. So feel free to get up and get some water. We, we have nurses that can do CPR here, but we'd rather not utilize that. So <laughs> please get all the water you need. We're going to be continuing today in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be starting in chapter 9, verse 13, so please turn there now. We'll be going through chapter 11, verse 6. This last week, Artina, Noah, and I were in Michigan visiting family and friends there. We have some dear missionary friends who are back on furlough over the summer, and whenever we get to get together with them, we go out to this particular Chinese buffet in Jackson, Michigan. Whenever I eat at the buffet, I have a particular plan of attack. You know, I, I start out with my first plate, and I, I, I kind of eat like a bird. You know, I, I get a little bit of this and a, and a bite of that. Just really samples of everything, you know, and then, and then I try that out and find out. I'm really wondering, like, how are the cream cheese wontons today? You know, like, how is the, are, are the butter mushrooms worth my appetite? You know, just kind of go checking stuff out. Well, then the, the second plate is for kind of going out and getting the things that I really liked and filling up on that. And if I have any appetite for a third plate, it's usually going to be favorites, just those last things. Well, there's one guarantee that probably on every single plate, I'm going to have cream cheese wontons. I've even had them on my dessert plate. They're just my favorite thing. Well, as we're continuing in our study of Ecclesiastes today, uh, we're going to be pressing into some material that's kind of proverbial. It, it's kind of like the Proverbs. And, and we might find similar things on multiple plates, if you will. We're going to find some things this week that we've seen last week. We'll see some things that we saw in previous weeks before that. You know, we might wonder, didn't we see some of this before? Didn't we get one of those teriyaki chicken stick things last week? Well, yes, but it's so good you just might want another. And the Holy Spirit, who has inspired His Word, knows what we need. And so He has given us everything good. So as we load up our plates today, I want to group our passage into four portions. I want, I want to show us four things to consider today. Today the preacher is going to instruct us in wisdom, in folly, in rulers, and endeavors. Wisdom, folly, rulers, and endeavors. The main thing we're going to see today is that wisdom is better than folly, even if the wise can't control the outcome of their lives. Again, wisdom is better than folly, even if the wise can't control the outcome of their lives. Let's start with Ecclesiastes 9, 13 to 18 here, and we're going to work through the text as we go. We'll start with these verses. The preacher says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, 
And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is good, and it is good for us, Lord. We love you. I pray that you would instruct us by your spirit and help us to see your son and to follow him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To start here, the preacher relays a story to us that he finds great. You've got this little city, insignificant, and it has few people in it. And then he sets up a contrast for us. It's besieged by a great king who builds great siege works against it. Now, we don't do siege warfare in, in modern, modern military tactics. Uh, things like massive bombs really uh, take out strongholds. So we don't do that. But for a couple thousand years, siege warfare was a big deal. And what you would have is you would have an army come and park outside of either like a stronghold or a city. A siege is from the Latin. It lit literally means to sit. And that's what a, an army would do. They'd come and they'd sit outside of a city so that nobody could get in, nobody could come out. No food was coming in. No reinforcements was coming in. They would just sit there. And what would end up happening is that eventually the city would break. They'd give in. Or sometimes the attacker would give up and go away, depending on the case. Uh, but often sickness would break out. There'd be famine. There'd be... Uh, infighting, there would be all sorts of issues that would happen that would cause the city to fall. And so when you, you tally up the resources here, you've got a great king who builds great siege works. He's, he knows what he's doing versus a little city that doesn't have much resources, doesn't have much in it. Now, it's a pretty desperate situation. You know, you would wonder who could possibly save this city? You know, maybe in the city there'd be a man who is so rich that he could hire an army to come and fend them off. Or maybe there'd be a Samson-like figure who had enough strength that he could be a one-man army and drive them out. Or maybe their king would be so war-tactical that with the little resources he had, he would know how to fight them off and ride out victorious. But none of that's found here. The preacher tells us that there was a poor man found in this city, and he had wisdom, and by his wisdom, he turned the tide. He saved the city. Now, that's astonishing, and you know, that would make a great movie if you think about it, but the irony here is that nobody remembered him. He had wisdom, but it wasn't even acknowledged for what he did. You know, it's at this point we would want to say, you know, as we've been saying, Hebel. You know, it's vanity. How can this be? But the preacher doesn't go there at this point. He concludes 
In verse 16, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Even if he didn't get the renown that he deserved, wisdom is still better. Wisdom is still more powerful than might. Wisdom is still better than folly. Although we can't control how people will respond to us, it is still better to be wise than not. We have another reference to wisdom as if we jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 10. The preacher says, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. Wisdom, like a sharp axe cutting through wood, helps to get the job done. So we see wisdom... Uh, is, is brought, held up in some ways and brought down in other ways. As we saw last week, as Lewis showed us from our previous passage, that under the sun, wisdom is a limited good. It truly is a good thing. But there are things that wisdom doesn't do for us. Wisdom doesn't secure a future outcome that we might want. Wisdom doesn't secure the recognition that maybe it deserves. Wisdom can't stop death. And so at some points we see the preacher despairing over these realities, and yet we see him stepping back and acknowledging the goodness of wisdom. And there's more to wisdom as we see the Bible storyline unfolding. Again, as Lewis pointed us to last week in 1 Corinthians 1, we saw that Jesus Christ himself is the wisdom of God. In Jesus God's plan of salvation unfolded and was accomplished. The cross of Jesus looks like folly to the world, but through it, God dealt with man's deepest need. Our desperate situation was far worse than having a great army against us. Our sin left us exposed and defenseless in the face of God's wrath. But God worked through the substitutionary death and resurrection of His Son so that through that, He could be just and the justifier of the guilty. That He would still be righteous and could receive sinners in. There's an incredible wisdom that goes into that. Paul will go so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 2 that if the rulers of this world had known that, if they had known what God was doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is a deeply wise plan that we could not have devised, nor would we have dared to ask for. God revealed His wisdom and His power to save us through Jesus. And we must come to Christ and receive Him to be truly wise. If we're in the Proverbs, we'll read that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And as that's applied to Christ, we would see that we must recognize Jesus for who He is and for what He has done. So how do we apply this? Well, we've seen it already a little bit. One application would be to seek wisdom. We should search the Scriptures. We should spend time in God's Word seeking wisdom. We should seek God's wisdom in Christ. He is that precious treasure from Matthew 13, 44. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like 
treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. As the Bible calls us to seek wisdom, so it calls us to seek Jesus and to, to give up everything that we would have him. He is precious. Another application is that we would seek wisdom knowing that although wisdom is good, it doesn't promise us a, a pain-free life. As the, the wise man doesn't receive the recognition he's due, so wis being wise isn't a one plus one transaction in which everything always goes the way we wish it would. Wisdom is good, but it is a limited good. Third, we should ask God for wisdom. God promises wisdom to those who seek Him in faith. And maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're not a follower of Jesus. Well, then this call for wisdom for you is an invitation to take up wisdom, to receive Christ, to know Him. You can truly know God through His Son, Jesus, and He welcomes all who come to Him. Those who come to Him, He will not cast out. Well, we've seen now what the preacher has to say about wisdom in this section. And how could he talk about wisdom without talking about folly? So we're going to turn to that now. Now you may notice as we press on in chapter 10, there's a strong proverbial style. It starts breaking it out like the Proverbs here. Now the preacher may bring down our unrealistically high view of wisdom, but he doesn't bring up our view of folly. He really leaves folly in the dirt and pushes it farther. And as we work through this text, we're going to see three areas in our lives where there can be folly. First, we'll see folly in actions, starting in verse, at the end of verse 18 in chapter 9. It says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. As one man's wisdom saved many, so one sinner destroys much good. A little folly outweighs a lot of wisdom and honor. How many people who have been famous have been brought down by a single statement? Decades of good and hard work can be wiped out by a few really stupid decisions. You know, you could imagine if King Henry VIII had written a book on contentment and marriage, we probably wouldn't be reading it, right? A lot of good can be wiped out by folly. Folly is expressed in the things that we do. As we continue to see here, though, folly can also be expressed in the things that we don't do, or at least the things we don't do on time. So let's look at verse 11. 
in chapter 10. It says, if the serpent, serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Jump down to 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. No, we don't do a lot of snake charming anymore, but snake charming was a thing, I guess. But you can imagine somebody trying to charm a snake and it going poorly, them getting bitten. I, I think what's going on here is there's a wisdom that, that it takes to charm a snake, but if you don't use that, it ain't going to do you any good. Once you've been bitten, you're done. Then the next picture we have here, we've got through sloth, the roof sinks in. In this case, it's talking about laziness then that is applied to our lives. Laziness and sloth, that's an old word, leads to the premature decay of the things that we own. I think as a homeowner, I feel a little nervous reading this. I mean, it's, it's calling us out a bit. Um, so you've got a picture of somebody who has a skill to do something and doesn't use it. You know, you might imagine that the guy that's got the skills to pay the bills, but he doesn't use those skills. Uh, you've got that picture of slothfulness, and then you've got somebody who could be stepping into something and doesn't. And because of that, there's decay. Folly is expressed in the way that we don't do things when we ought to and fulfill our obligations. And through that, we become poor stewards. Lastly, the preacher tells us about folly and the things we say. Let's go in chapter 10, verse 12 here. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no one knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? You see the picture of the wise man whose lips garner favor with others, creates a blessing from the outside, but the fool's lips eat himself. The fool is consumed by his own words. He destroys himself with his mouth. And from start to finish, the words of the fool are worthless at best, it says here. And the fool talks confidently about things that he could not possibly know, namely the future here. So the preacher is filling out for us a, a picture of folly to contrast wisdom here. And you can see folly in actions and in inaction and in the words of the mouth. Well, how do we apply this? Well, first of all, I hope that we are willing to read what the Bible says about the fool and at times see ourselves there. It's really easy to read the Proverbs and read about fools and say, that guy over there, that guy over there, we don't want to apply it to ourselves, but we should be willing to. As we see this, have we done foolish things? Has, has our sin wounded people? Has laziness led to decay in the things that God has entrusted to us? How often do we stick our foot in our mouths? Has folly found a home in our speech? 
It does us good to acknowledge it when it's there. It does us no good to cover it up. And if God exposes that, then look to God. He is the one who gives wisdom. He is the one who makes us wise. He is the one who forgives us when we sin. Jesus tells us that it's out of the overflow of the heart that our mouth speaks. And Jesus has the power to transform our hearts so that our words would be life-giving, that they would be a blessing to others. So we've seen wisdom, and we've seen folly. We're going to be turning now, and we'll, we'll see the topic of rulers. We've seen it before in chapter 8, Well, we're returning to it now. You may remember in eight, chapter, two, chap, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, the preacher says, I say keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. And he continues on teaching about the ruler. Well, we're coming back to the rulers. We'll see ver first in chapter 10, verse 4. He says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. We might not be able to control the rulers over us, but we can respond in wisdom. The encouragement here to us is that we can often put out a fire by keeping our cool in the face of leaders. As he's pressing on and as we continue, we're going to see the, the multiple bad effects of faulty leadership. In verses 5 to 7 we read, the preachers say that there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And the picture we get here is that when leadership goes corrupt and goes bad, things get out of order, things get wonky. Stuff starts to get distorted, and the domain of their leadership decays. As we continue here, we pick up uh, in, in chapter 10 later on, we're going to get to verse 16 here. It says, uh, well, I'll start. He, he, notice that it starts out with a woe in verse uh, 16 and a, a happy or blessed in verse 17. Again, this is very much a kind of proverbial material. He's pronouncing blessings and woes here. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your child is a king and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time. He pronounces woe on the land whose king is a child. I think here that it's a matter of immaturity more than it's a matter of age. The second thing he says is, woe to that land whose princes feast in the morning. In that case, for these leaders, their pleasure comes before their duty, and that compromises their duty. These are the kinds of rulers that you don't want to have, and the land that has them should rightly mourn. On the other hand, a land would be blessed if it had rulers of a different sort. It says, happy and blessed is the land whose king is a son of the nobility. I think what that means here is, is first that 
there's a maturity there, but also the son of the nobility, I think, is a, a pointer to the fact that that king has been trained. He, he's had the right kind of upbringing to help him rule. There's a blessing that comes with that. Further, the princes of this land feast at the proper time. You know, the, the rulers aren't marked by that rich party boy lifestyle. They feast for strength so that they can accomplish their work, not escape from it. The land with these kinds of rulers is blessed. As we keep going here in verse 19, it says, Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Kind of strikes us maybe as, as funny reading that. We would say, well, money answers everything. What does that mean? Well, some would situate this in the text with the rulers. That's their kind of view. And so maybe even they're levying taxes because more money would fix their problems. That's possible. But I think as well there's, a, there's an acknowledgement in the book of Ecclesiastes that there are good things in life that we can enjoy in their proper place. There are ways that, that food and drink are made for our enjoyment. That money is a blessing that can be used well. And yet, we can't put our hope in any of these things. So whether it fits with the kings or stands alone here, I think both sides of it are taught. We're continuing now in verse 20. No, it says, even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Verse 20 is bringing us back to instruction on rulers. And I think what he's saying here is that in spite of the pitfalls of being under rulers, uh, we're still called to give respect where respect is due. That ruler just practically speaking, still has power to do us ill. And it would be good, uh, just as he calls us to keep our cool in the face of anger, uh, to keep our tongue uh, so that it doesn't come back to haunt us. You know, how do we apply this? Well, I think, as we've seen, we should respect authorities that God has set in place over us uh, in his providence. We never follow them into sin but we give respect where it's fitting. On the flip side, perhaps God has placed you in a place of authority. I think this text would call us to take that responsibility and feel the weight of it. You may affect the lives of many. Don't take it lightly. Don't use your power to satisfy yourself at the expense of those under you. Carry out your leadership in the spirit of Christ following his example of service. Further, it's easy to want to be a leader right now. But there can be a curse pronounced on those who have immature leaders. It's best to wait until you are mature, adequate to the task at hand. Well, how would you know that? Well, I would encourage you to ask somebody in your life, if you're thinking through those decisions, ask somebody in your life who you trust to give you an honest answer and is informed on the situation. So there's a call here for wisdom in the face of leadership and rulers that we may not enjoy. Wisdom doesn't guarantee for us that we won't have situations in life 
that there's hardship. We see that with leaders. Wisdom also doesn't secure the future the way we might like it, as we've seen. However, wisdom would apply in certain ways when it comes to what we're pursuing with ventures. Uh, the preacher is going to tell us now in chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, about how we should think about endeavors with wisdom, how we should think about the ventures that we pursue, and how to do that in wisdom. As we get into chapter 11 now, and as we're, we're uh, continuing, the, the book is really turning a little bit. The, the preacher is rounding third base, and he's heading for home. He's giving some final exhortations that's going to carry us right through the end of the book. And we're just going to get started with a little bit of that today. The first verse here, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. I think I always thought that what that meant is, you know, you take your sliced bread and you chuck it on the water, you know, it gets all soggy and it floats away and it comes back later. Uh, maybe that's what he's saying, but it would seem like there's not a lot of profit in that, right? Uh, another way it could be understood is sending out your, your bread or sending out your grain on ships in commerce and that it will return profitable. I think that makes a little more sense here. In that case, and as we'll continue to see, the call then is to engage in profitable endeavors even though there's risk to it. You know, cargo at sea, especially in that day, was always at risk to storm and to loss. And so when you stepped out in that, you could face loss. We'll continue down in verse 2 here. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. You see here a pointer to, to invest. Uh, so this could be lending and, and giving in, in light of the fact that you don't know what's going to happen in future days. Or it might be an investment for profit to, to do that in multiple directions because you don't know what's going to happen. We always make our decisions and live our lives in a world in which we don't know the future. Neither do we have complete knowledge. The thing we pursue in our work may go belly up. We simply don't know. Ships can sink and weather may not turn out good for crops. Nebraskans couldn't foresee this year that they'd have a billion-dollar flood coming through in the spring. But that real risk should not deter us from giving it a go. The preacher similarly points out that there's always risks in our endeavors, whether good or ill. Let's jump back in verses 8 and 9. He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, I think that's kind of an ill endeavor. The, the, probably the idea of breaking through a wall might be for stealing. And somebody digging a pit might be for entrapment. Well, that might come back on them. Uh, but even for legitimate work, there's risk involved. Look at in verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. It's kind of an irony here that uh, in our attempt to make a living it might cost us our lives. There, there's a reality that whatever we pursue, there's some risk to it. 
As the preacher acknowledges, there's danger in these things. And yet, it would be foolish not to act on account of the dangers that are there. As we think about the future and endeavors as well, we can move to verse 3. He says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Perhaps this is talking about trying to predict the future in a sense, trying to understand what's going to happen. If you see clouds, it's inevitable that they're going to drop that rain somewhere. But a tree standing, you don't know where it's going to fall. Not until after the fact. And when it falls, that's where it's going to be. Moves on in verse 4. He says, He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. I think we see that picture here of somebody who is, is looking at the weather and they're, they're trying to calculate. They're continually crunching the numbers but never pulling the trigger. And on account of it, nothing good comes out. If you don't sow seed in the spring, don't be surprised if you harvest nothing but weeds in the fall. I think that's the picture that's going on here. And the preacher is calling us that in wisdom, we would act even when we don't have all the details. We don't know the future. Remember, it's the, the fool that we saw earlier who talks confidently about the future, about things he doesn't know. Now, we so often wish that God would make things crystal clear for us. We want to know exactly what he's doing and exactly what he wants us to do in making decisions. You know, we want that audible voice to say, go this way and be blessed. We generally don't get that. So how do we make decisions when we don't know the future, when we don't have all the details, when we are forced to make a decision but we don't have everything we would like. Well, I think this is where we would look, first of all, at God's Word. And we would find what He has revealed. He has revealed so much. And so let's look through it. Let's see what He has told us. And heed that first. And then we should pray for wisdom from God. And then we should reach out to our brothers and sisters around us. Get their input. Reach out to the community of God and hear what they see in your life, what they see in you. And then make a decision and act. It does us no good to sit around endlessly and wondering and thinking and, and wondering and thinking and, and never getting to it. I think the preacher here is calling us that there's wisdom in pursuit. There's wisdom in taking action here. And he says in verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I think that's a restatement. We're not to be afraid. We're to press forward. Now, if he can say this with a perspective under the sun, having looked at the things around him, if he can come to this conclusion in wisdom, then how much more can we do this when we look above the sun? We know that we are not at the mercy of some cosmic machine that's just continuing to roll on. We have a good heavenly Father who is guiding us, who is sovereign over our lives, who even when we step out and fail, He is there to be with us. He is there to comfort us. He is there to welcome us in and to help us. 
Christians should be incredibly fearless as we press forward in our lives and seek to live for God and make decisions in our lives. Further, this world is not our ultimate home. And while we may have to take risks here, heaven is secure for us in Christ. Our eternal state is not in the state of risk. It is secure for us. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and He will receive us to Himself. So to bring this all together as we close, see that wisdom is better than folly even if the wise can't control the outcome of their lives. Wisdom can serve us as we live under rulers and as we lead others. Wisdom also serves, serves us in acknowledging the nature of this broken world and pursuing endeavors anyways. Let's pray.